From the Amazon to the Himalayas, God is accomplishing his mission. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast, stories and conversations with the global church and for the global church about the mission of God in the world. And now here is your host, Paul Aiken. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. Our guest today is Dr. Jimmy Scroggins. Jimmy and his family live and serve in West Palm Beach in South Florida. Jimmy's a, a longtime friend and mentor in my life. Uh, he and his wife, Kristen, did our pre-marriage counseling, and we continue to look to the Scroggins for uh, wisdom in marriage, ministry, parenting, and I'm just really excited for us to have this conversation today. Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much, Paul. It's always a pleasure to be with you, and man, I love being connected with what's happening at the Billy Graham School, and of course, you know, the Aiken family's like family with us, and so it's, man, what a pleasure to be on with you. Well, Jimmy, thanks so much. Why don't we start by maybe you just sharing with our listeners your salvation testimony. Tell us how God saved you. Yeah, so I was raised in a Christian home. My mom and dad um, uh, were believers in Jesus. They loved each other. They loved my brothers and me, and they took us to church from the time that we were born. And so when I was in early elementary school, like six or seven years old, I accepted Jesus into my heart. Uh, at Children's Church. Uh, we were actually part of a church. Our, the Children's Church met in a high school auditorium. And so uh, some college kids that were running our Children's Church uh, led me to Christ, and I accepted Jesus, and I was baptized uh, soon after. And, uh, you know, Paul, probably somewhat like you, it's not that I've never done anything wrong, so everybody has their ups and downs for sure. But ever since that time, I've really been uh, walking with Jesus and trying to follow Him. Um and haven't ever really had a time where I walked away from my faith or anything like that. That's just, um, that was when I, that was when I received Jesus. I believe the Holy Spirit came into my life at that point. And uh, I'm really grateful for the influence of my parents and helping me to do that. So obviously the Lord brought you to himself, drew you to himself, but now you're, mm -hmm. you're pastoring a, a multi-site, multi-campus church in South Florida. Maybe tell us some of that story. How did you end up pastoring a church like that in South Florida? Oh, so my wife, Christian, and I got married in 1994. We, we were living in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I was attending Southern Seminary, and then I ended up staying in Louisville for 15 years. We stayed there, and I was uh, a teaching pastor at Hy-Vee Baptist Church. I became a dean at uh, Boyce College there at Southern Seminary. From 2008, Christian and I have been really praying. Uh, we're in our mid-30s, and we were praying about what was next for us and we really felt like God was leading me to go be a lead pastor, a senior pastor of a local church. We wanted to be in local church ministry. And so we began to pray about that. And one of the opportunities we had was to come to the First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach, which at the time had had a lot of problems. They hadn't had a pastor in five years. They were financially in big trouble. Their facilities were challenged, to say the least. And they had multiple scandals with pastors and lawsuits and a bunch of stuff. And so uh, when we came here, the church really, the good thing for a new leader is it had nowhere to go really but up. And But there were still a lot of great people here. So we felt led by God. We, we prayed and we looked around and had some other opportunities, but we really felt like this was the opportunity that God had for us. And so uh, in 2008, we took our seven children and moved to South Florida. Okay. That's, that's helpful. You know, I'm sure there's, that's a bit of a journey and adventure there. 
One of the focuses of the podcast this season is we're looking at kind of large global cities, urban areas around the world. And so I've been talking with people that are in London and Rome and Mexico City and, and all kinds of other places around the world. But you live in South Florida. So I want you to tell our listeners some about South Florida. What makes that part of the world a little bit interesting, maybe a little bit unique? Yeah. So when we talk about South Florida, South Florida is really not you can't, you can't you can't think about South Florida culturally the way you think about it geographically. So when people think of South Florida, they usually type, uh, draw a line, uh, a horizontal line across Florida uh, about Orlando and go, OK, well, everything below that is South Florida. But that's really not true culturally. When we say South Florida, we're talking about the three counties on the southeast corner of the state of Florida. We're talking about uh, Miami-Dade County, which is where Miami, the city of Miami is just north of that is uh, Broward County, which is where the city of Fort Lauderdale is. And just north of that is Palm Beach County, which is where West Palm Beach is, which is where I live. And so these three counties, really, there's no, if you drive down I-95 heading north or south, it's about a it's about a 70 mile long, 20 mile wide strip of urban and suburban sprawl that goes from the Everglades where you can't develop. So like the development just goes to this road and then just the Everglades on the other side of the road. And then you can't develop to the east because the Atlantic Ocean's there. And so there's this just strip of land. And this is what we mean by South Florida. It's an, it's an incredible place. There's a lot of diversity here, but most of the diversity is uh, Spanish-speaking diversity combined with some Caribbean Blacks, so Haitian, Bahamian, Jamaican, Trinidadian. Uh, so there's a lot of Caribbean Black. There's a lot of Spanish speakers here, a lot of South and Central American people here. And then there are people from the Middle East or from Africa or from Eastern Europe or wherever, but those are a lot uh, less. So like if you go to uh, Miami-Dade County, it's about 70% Hispanic. And if you go to uh, Broward County, just north of that, it's about 40% Hispanic. And if you come to Palm Beach County, it's about 30% Hispanic. It's also uh, primarily unchurched, which and 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 never church. So for instance, uh, a few years ago, Barna Research did a study and they found out that West Palm Beach, Florida has the highest percentage of never churched people of any city in America. Any city, not, I mean, not Portland, not San Francisco, not New York. West Palm Beach has a higher percentage of never churched people. So we're talking about a culture that is largely, I wouldn't even, it's Post-Christian is probably not the right term because it's probably never been Christianized in some ways. And the cool thing about that is in our in our community, it's multilingual, it's multi-ethnic, and it's not that I do not feel like our community is hostile towards Christianity. It's just the people in our community generally aren't thinking a lot of God thoughts. It's just not part of the conversation or not something that they're wondering about or worried about. And I'd also just say one of the really fun things about our community is although there's a lot of racial, ethnic, uh, linguistic diversity here, it's highly integrated. And so like every urban area in North America is diverse. Okay. Like Louisville is, Birmingham is, Chattanooga is, but in South Florida, it's highly integrated. So you don't have these separations of where these people go to this school and these people go to that school, or these people live in this neighborhood or that neighborhood. It's highly integrated, which is a really kind of a interesting kind of cauldron of cultural mixing that you get to that you get to experience and where you get to try to have a church 
That's that's really helpful. That provides some good context. Uh, you you talked some about the the church, and so I want to kind of dive in a little deeper there, particularly about about the state of the church. You mentioned you know that that's very unchurched. Has, has that always been the case? Is that something that's that's newer over the last couple of decades? Maybe talk a little bit more about kind of the state of the evangelical church in that part of Florida. All right. So in the seventies and the eighties. Uh, South Florida just blew up in terms of population. So there's all these neighborhoods that were being built, all these communities, all these buildings, these little municipalities, and it just blew up like in the 70s and the 80s, and it continues today. And so Southern Baptists particularly did a great job back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s when this when this area was booming. And uh, for instance, one of the things that Southern Baptists did is we went into all of these communities and we bought all of these five acre plots all over South Florida. And a lot of them at the time were in these remote locations out in the middle of swamps and the pastures and, you know, dirt roads. But lo and behold, 30, 40 years later, these, a lot of these are prime locations. And so we have some incredible churches, little churches that were started and planted 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago that are now in primo locations for reaching people. The problem is that those churches were often started by people who had a certain kind of a a cultural approach to what church was like. And a lot of those people are still alive. And so what happens is you have these churches in premium locations with aging and shrinking congregations and trying to find ways to revitalize those is a big challenge because we have a lot of church planting going on in South Florida. But the price of real estate is so expensive, it's almost prohibitive for a new church plant to ever have a church building unless they're able to create some kind of a partnership with an existing church that already has a facility. And so that's a big part of our challenge. So the other thing is there's some really large churches down here. So there's a church called Christ Fellowship Church that is here in a, based in Palm Beach County. And it's one of the top 10 largest churches in America. And we're good friends with them. They're you know, multi-site mega church, thousands and thousands. And then uh, Calvary Chapel has a huge Calvary Chapel based in Fort Lauderdale. Again, thousands and thousands, multi-site. So there's a few like really large churches. But if you think about it, like in Palm Beach County, there's a million and a half, 1.5 or 1.6 million people. So let's say 20 or 25,000 people attend Christ Fellowship. That is a minuscule piece of the population. And there just aren't it's not like Atlanta or Dallas where there's, you know, a church of a thousand or more on every corner. There's a few churches like that, but there's not enough. And we need more churches and we need more innovative ways of doing church if we're going to actually make a dent in the population that needs Jesus. Okay, that's really helpful as well. Maybe you talked about some of the diversity, the the, the unique integratedness of the diversity that's there. Can you talk with us some about some of the challenges uh, of reaching people in this particular part of the country? What are some of the, the barriers to, to gospel ministry there? Well, I think the number one barrier is we don't have enough gospel outposts. We don't have enough neighborhood churches that are accessible to enough people. So one of the, the strategy that we are pursuing at Family Church is we want to put a neighborhood pastor in a neighborhood church, in a neighborhood building that speaks the neighborhood language. So we see the neighborhood church as the mission uh, the mission headquarters, the mission outpost for that neighborhood. And then how can we contextualize our ministry so that it speaks to the people in that neighborhood and invites them and lives out 
the mission of Jesus in front of them in a way that's uh, winsome and attractive to them. And that also confronts them with the claims of Christ on their life. And so we want to put a neighborhood pastor in a neighborhood church in every neighborhood. But the big challenge is what I just said. Like, how do you do that? How do you have enough trained pastors that can speak the neighborhood language? How do you fund all of these people? A lot of them are going to have to be bivocational. It's expensive to live down here. How do you find a neighborhood building? It's really hard and really expensive. And so those are some of the challenges that we're having to find ways to innovate to try to meet those. But honestly, we have those are problems that we haven't solved and we're working hard at it. What about, obviously there's challenges, you know, you, you just mentioned several of those, even you think about kind of the, the cost, you think about the diversity, you think about even the worldview, there's a lot of challenges there, but I know the Lord's at work. I know the Lord is doing some good things. So when you think back over the last two to three years, what are some of the encouraging things that you have seen the Lord do? I know there's people around the world who are praying for you, praying for your church and for your ministry. Tell us some of the things that the Lord's doing there. Well, some incredible things. So we always pray Luke chapter 10, verse two, that the Lord would send more workers into his harvest. And this is our piece of the harvest field that God's assigned to us. And so, so we're praying that God would send more workers to harvest and God's doing that. So there, we're raising up workers from within who feel a call to ministry. We've been able to develop some systems for training bivocational indigenous leaders for churches here in South Florida. And so this bivocational movement that we've been able to be a part of is big for our ministry. It's a big way of how we do church planning and church revitalization. And then I think the idea that we can connect with people of different ethnicities and cultures. And so we want to do two things. One, we want to invite people from every language and every neighborhood and every ethnicity into what we're already doing. But then we also want to create some, some neighborhood expressions of the church of Jesus Christ that match a particular neighborhood. So we're going to have churches whose heart language, where they worship in Spanish, for people whose heart language is Spanish. And we have churches whose uh, worship in Portuguese, because people from Brazil, their heart language is Portuguese. And people who worship in Haitian, you know, French, Cre- Creole. So, so we have all of these different things because we want to make an appeal. But then we also have some congregations that are in neighborhoods that are upscale. So we have uh, some congregation where we're going to go into those neighborhoods and try to reach them for Jesus Christ. Um, so all the way around, I think that God is bringing us workers and helping us um, create systems to raise them up. That's good. You know, we've touched on some of this already. You've talked some about kind of the the neighborhood focus. In many ways, what you've described is you're looking at your city like like a missionary. You're looking through the lens of a missionary and thinking about these different cultural groups and even different language groups to a certain extent. So that's really encouraging to hear. What do you believe that it takes? You know, we as Southern Baptists have been good at, at doing things in Southern rural contexts, but maybe not always so good at doing things in urban city contexts. What do you believe it takes to do faithful ministry in, in urban areas? Well, I think, I think what you just said is so important. In fact, I had this conversation with a guy yesterday. So we have, we have some guys in our team that have moved here from other places in the Southeast. They came in from Alabama or Kentucky or Tennessee. And what we found is that as that happens, a lot of these guys, when they get here, the culture, we, we, we're not really in the Bible belt. I mean, you might think that we're in the Bible belt. So we like to say that we're below the Bible belt because this is just not a Bible belt culture. But when guys come from the Bible Belt and they come down here, a lot of times they stay 
for one or two years. But after a couple of years, they and their wives kind of figure out, hey, we don't really fit here. We don't really like it here. We don't really, man, the diversity is kind of fun as an idea, but it's not always fun as a lifestyle. And the transient nature of people here, it's hard to have roots here. You don't really feel like you're part of a community. And so people want to, you know, they, they, they want to go home. And I actually don't mind that because the people in Alabama and Tennessee and Kentucky need great pastors and we need great ministries there. And so I actually think that's good if that's where God's, that's where they're going to plant their lives. And I'm, I'm for all of that. But the only way people are going to survive down here or in New York City or in Las Vegas or in, you know, certain places in California is you're going to have to think of yourself like a missionary. So if you're like a missionary, then you show up and you go, hey, this doesn't feel like home. Um, there's some things culturally that I don't like about this place and that I miss about wherever it was that I came from. But when you're a missionary, you're a missionary. So you just kind of go, hey, yeah, that's part of the cost of being a missionary is we we, we live here and uh, we are going to do the best we can to plant ourselves here and take joy in the cultural things that we have access to here. And we're not going to sit here and dream about where where else we could be or what could be happening some other place. And if that's really what's happening, then I encourage people to go, man, go to where the dream is for you. And uh, I mean, God needs you there. I, I'm for that. And so I think the missionary mindset is the biggest, the biggest thing. And uh, I know people say, oh, wow, you're down there really suffering in West Palm Beach. And, and they're right. This is a beautiful place. It's an incredible place. Uh, we're, we're not living, you know, in some uh, isolated Himalayan village. OK, my, my wife's not out there trying to pasteurize, you know, goat milk or something so we can eat. However, culturally, it is different. And we do have an issue with church planners, too. So church planners come down here. They raise a bunch of money. They stay here two or three years. But the thing is, you can't come down here with your with your with your Tennessee twang and your, you know, Mumford and Sons praise music and think that you're going to make a connection in you know Miami. That's not what's happening down here. And you've got to think like a missionary. That's really good. In today's uncertain world, there's an urgent need for competent biblical counselors who can offer hope and help through the whole counsel of God's Word. Are you called to be a counselor? A degree in biblical counseling from Southern Seminary is designed to equip students with a biblical foundation and professional skills needed to help others navigate the struggles and challenges of everyday life. This degree prepares graduates to minister to individuals, couples, and families in church, nonprofit, or missional settings. To learn more about Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, and doctoral degrees available through the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary, go to sbts.edu bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. There you'll learn how podcast listeners can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu bgs. We mentioned at the beginning, you mentioned that you were here in Louisville for a season of time preparing for, for ministry here at Southern Seminary, a, a, a graduate of Southern, a graduate of the Billy Graham School. How did your time at Southern help prepare you for a life of ministry? I mean, my time at Southern was so powerful. So a couple of things that happened. Uh, one is I, I was able to build a set of mentoring relationships with men who can, to this day continue to speak into my life. And so when I have a personal uh, crisis, uh, a family, marriage, parenting, uh, anything, I have, a, I have a set of mentors that I can pick up the phone and they'll return my call and they can speak into my life. And those relationships were, were developed back in 
1994, 95, 96, 97. So it's guys like your dad. It's guys like Al Mohler. It's guys like Herschel York and Kevin Ezel and Tom Rayner, guys that I met through my time at Southern. So the relationships and the network is powerful, which is why I'm a big advocate of in-person seminary training if you can do it. Uh, it's not for everyone, but I'm a huge advocate because that's why when my son wanted to go to seminary, I said, man, there's great seminary at Southeastern. There's a great seminary at Midwestern. It's a great seminary in Texas. You know, we have good seminaries, but I'd encourage you to go to Louisville, go, go to the Billy Graham School, and don't take it online. Go there and sit in the class and walk in people's offices and have coffee with these guys. These will set up finish. So that's one. The second thing is, is they gave me uh, tools. So one of the things that we have to do is teach the Bible. Um, we've got to be effective at teaching the Bible. Everything that we do and believe is coming from the scriptures. And at Southern Seminary, they didn't teach me everything I needed to know about the Bible, but they taught me how to find it. And so they showed me, you know, the, the, the tools of the original languages, the tools of systematic theology, the tools of church history, and then some of the cross-cultural tools that I, that I learned, particularly in the Graham School. Uh, all of those, it, it wasn't that they really, they didn't really make me an expert on anything, but they showed me where all the resources are. And wow, that's just been such a rich, rich inheritance that I've gained from being a part of Southern Seminary. Jimmy, the next question is a little bit more personal, but it's a question I ask everybody that I interview. You know, obviously there's there's lots of things that you could be doing with your life. But the question for you is day after day, week after week, month after month, what keeps you there in that place? And why are you giving your life to this work? Well, Paul, the reason that I went into ministry, um, the thing that really lit my fire was I used to be a youth pastor. And I remember when I was like 23, 24 years old that I had about 12 kids in a van because that was how big our youth group was. And I was taking them on a mission trip. And I just remember seeing what God was doing in the lives of those teenagers and watching them make life altering decisions for Christ and seeing them serve other people. And I thought, you know, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. And so my whole call to ministry, my understanding of the value of ministry, when I think about it, it's, it's 12 kids in a van uh, on a mission trip. Now, now I'm a pastor of a church with 200 employees and 14 campuses and thousands and thousands of people and millions and millions of dollars. Well, I don't really get to do 12 kids in a van myself, but I'm always trying to capture those moments. So when I'm standing in the ocean baptizing a new believer, or when I'm standing there like I was last night on the sidelines of a Little League football game, talking to a man who just became a believer at our church on Sunday, boy, that's what keeps you going. So to me, what has to keep you going is the the mission field, man. So the reason I'm in South Florida and I'm not leaving and I'm planting my life here is because Kristen and I, my wife and I, we just love this mission field. This is the mission field that God has put on our hearts. And we believe in all the mission fields around the world. That's why we give to Annie Armstrong. And that's why we give to Lottie Moon and our church participates in the cooperative program. But this is our piece of the mission field. And uh, that's what gets me up every day. Jimmy, thank you so much for your time. This is the last question for you. What is one thing you want everyone listening to this podcast to know or to do? I hope that everyone listening, especially if you're in if you're in church-based ministry, I hope that you are on a mission field that you believe in. And if you believe in the value of the people on your mission field, 
that will get you up every single day. And whether you're in a big organization or a small one, you have a lot of resources or very meager resources. It doesn't matter if you believe in the mission field, because here's the deal, man. We are all surrounded by an ocean of lost people. In America, we have unprecedented freedom. We have an unprecedented amount of resources, and we have a gospel that really saves. So all we have to do is be enthusiastic about a gospel that really saves and a mission field that needs it. And the cool thing is, whatever kind of organization you're a part of, enthusiasm is free. It doesn't cost a thing, and you can have it for the mission field where God's put you. Amen. I hope you enjoyed hearing from from Jimmy today. Please pray for him and his work in South Florida as he labors to reach people for Christ. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.